0: For over 62 years and 3,166 issues, and counting, Sports Illustrated has built a reputation as the pinnacle of American sports writing. Now, do we deserve that distinction? Decide for yourself. Peruse any of the roughly 80,000 stories available for free in the SI Vault, which debuted last week at si.com slash vault. Now it's all there. Do you remember an SI story from years past that you'd like to reread? The new vault is searchable so you'll be able to find that story. Have a vague recollection of a cover that you enjoyed? Well, every single cover is up there too. It's all free and it's all at si.com vault. Once again, that's si.com vault.
1: What you do when you're good. When you do well, you're a good person. And when you do poorly, you're a bad person. And very few people have the mental strength to tolerate that kind of liability over the course of a hundred-game season, for example, in basketball. It's it's sending yourself on a neurological, psychological, neurochemical roller coaster that just can't end well.
0: Hello, sports fans and science aficionados. This is Sam Summers, and this is your Brain on Sports. It's our podcast in which a sports journalist, John Wertheim, the executive editor at SI, and a psychology professor, yours truly, explore what the world of sports has to teach us about human nature, about who we are, how we think, decisions that we make, the hidden forces that that shape our behavior, and this This nexus of sports and human nature is the focus of the new book that John and I have written, titled Also, Not Coincidentally, This Is Your Brain on Sports, which is now out and available online at bookstores everywhere. Um, We usually take one of either two separate routes on this podcast. Option A is we locate a guest from the world of sports, uh, an athlete, a coach, someone who works in a front office, and we talk a little bit about what they do and 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 sort of the science and the thought process underlying their performance, their job, and so forth. Or uh, option B, our second option is often have someone from uh, the, the world of science, a researcher, a behavioral scientist who studies something either in the world of sports or that has some obvious implication for the world of sports. Only once in the past have we managed to sort of check both of these boxes at the same time. And back in November, we had a uh, Division three men's basketball coach, John Tower was his name, uh, is his name, the uh, head coach of the University of St. Thomas, a school a liberal arts school in, in Minnesota who, in addition to being the head coach of, of the, the the Tommies at, there at the University of St. Thomas, towers a PhD in psychology, a published author, a researcher, and so forth. And we talked about his his research, about courses he teaches, coaching, and so forth. and And you know what? This month, as luck would have it, not luck, but as good fortune would have it, Towers team, the Tommies, won the Division Three National Championship, so uh, even better guest uh, than, uh, in retrospect, as it turns out, uh, and pretty accomplished season for him. And today, it's exciting because we're going to do it again. Today, we have someone who is both an expert in that world uh, of sports, but also uh, someone with a background in the behavioral sciences. And we have with us today John Amechi, a man who you know for several reasons, um, but perhaps not for one of the reasons that we're going to talk about and introduce to you here today, John had a five-year career in the NBA, playing for the, the Cavaliers, Magic, and Jazz. You may also remember that in 2007, John wrote a book titled Man in the Middle, in which he came out and became the first professional basketball player to openly identify as gay. Those aspects of John's career and life probably ring a bell, and you may have heard him more recently as well as a broadcaster and media personality uh, of, of late, but what you might not have known, and what I did not know until very recently when when we were both on the same panel on a news show, is that... That John, since, since retiring from the NBA, has done graduate study in psychology, the same thing that at one point I did and, and now does work as an organizational consultant and a performance coach. In short, I'm going to take a bit of a stretch and say that he's my colleague, which is something I've never been able to say before about an NBA player. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so, John and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Uh, so, uh, I guess the first question I would want to ask as, in my case, a, a psychologist, a PhD psychologist who's always been fascinated by the world of sports, which of those, can you say which of those came first? Your, your interest in psychology, your, your interest in, in basketball, or just more generally, how one of those careers you've had relates to the other one? Uh,
1: definitely, I, I, the interest in human behavior, the interest in psychology came first for me. I, I knew I'd be a psychologist when I was seven years old. Um, I, I didn't even know what it was called back then, but that's what I I knew I wanted to study uh, and learn more about. And then basketball didn't come along until I was seventeen years old, so I, I'd never even heard of it prior to that point. So it, it definitely was a late entry to the race.
0: Well, and, and so as this uh, young man with an interest in in human nature, with an interest in, in human psychology, you know, you suddenly find yourself playing, you know, major college men's basketball, playing in the NBA. How how, as someone, again, so interested in uh, the, the workings of the human mind and human nature, how did, you, how did you find that? How interesting a psychological field study was that career as a major college basketball player and then an NBA uh, athlete?
1: I think part of the problem with, with um, psychologists analyzing their own lives or, or examining their own lives with any real alacrity is that, is, is, is that the, the self gets in the way, and I, I wish... I really wish I'd been able to apply some of the, the, the real integrity of thought that I apply on a daily basis now to other people's challenges to my own um, thoughts, worries, problems as I was an athlete. Uh, or even examining the, the... It was slightly easier, I think, to examine things like team dynamics to really understand what was happening, to look around a locker room and, and almost see uh, overlaid on, on this room of people... The, the different ways that they interacted with each other, the, the different cliques and subsets that had developed, um, that was easier for me to see. But in terms of my own performance, for example, my own resilience, I, I wasn't able in the way that I you know, I wish to really help myself be better. And I definitely think I could have been. But But in fairness, college was also my first experience of talking to a psychologist. We, we, we were one of the universities that was, in that time, in the 90s, quite cutting edge in that we had a sports psychologist that worked with us, that talked about, even back then, about mindfulness, about uh, slowing things down for ourselves, about using those techniques in, in you know, certain situations like free throws or coming out of a timeout in the last seconds of a game. Uh, so I was, I was quite intriguing from that perspective, but I never was quite, I was never able to do the kind of self-examination and self-help that I wish I could.
0: Well, and so that's interesting do you, is that, is that youth, is that, is that inexperience or is that, as you suggested, even if you were a professional athlete today, it would be difficult. Is that the difficulty of, of stepping back and actually seeing these things in yourself?
1: I think part of it is youth. Um, I think just being young and not having experienced many things, not having been through some of the training uh, I mean, I remember going through, I started off my master's in marriage and family therapy, and I remember um, going through the therapeutic training process over a summer and um, doing some hands-on stuff. And it's like, God, had I had any of this experience, I would have been better at handling my own situation. Yeah. But you just, you just don't have that, that experience or knowledge. And however many books you've read, especially with the way psychology is, is done in, in college, um, you'll know better than, than anybody. It, you often do much of the kind of dry history of psychology stuff or drier history of psychology yeah. stuff followed immediately by leaping into the abnormal psychology stuff. And, and it's not necessarily, unless you're a specific type of person, very applicable or useful to you, even if it's fascinating. Yeah.
0: So were you that guy then? Were you that guy in the, in the locker room? Were you, were you the, uh, the team marriage therapist, so to speak, counselor? Were you, were you seeing these cliques forming, the, the, the rifts that might be out there, the, the, the prob- problems with team chemistry brewing and trying to do something about that? Or were you sort of silently taking this all in? What, what kind of clubhouse guy were you?
1: I was definitely, I mean, I was always very different, I think, in locker room, mostly because of my Britishness. Um, in that, you know, in that environment, yeah. back in the '90s, there were very few foreign players in in college athletics, and certainly very few within the NBA. And and so it was an unusual thing to hear this voice coming out of the body that I have in a locker room. So it wasn't so much interventionary, though. My junior year, I was captain. My senior year, I was captain. And I'd like to believe, though I think I lack objectivity here. I'd like to believe that some of the skills that I brought to bear were on the basis of this kind of tapping into the being able to see the the nexus of when issues and challenges were going to arise. But I was also part of it, so uh, you know, I, I know that I handled stuff badly, that I got swept up in in terms of emotion, um, and I think about those those moments where I regret the failure of my own leadership, um, even though it's obvious on reflection. It's obvious. I think if anybody had been watching from the outside, it's just when you're in the middle of it, you find it hard to maintain that objectivity and not let your passions run away with you.
0: Well, and so if you, and we all do this as we get older, as we become more, as we become wiser. But I mean, if you knew then in your playing days in college and in the NBA, what you know now about, about psychology, about whether we're talking team dynamics, whether we're talking actually just individual performance, uh, mindfulness, you talked about, you talked about the uh, the psychology of sort of free throw shooting, what might you have done differently in your playing days? Would there be things that you would have in terms of on the court or maybe even just preparing to take the court, pregame and so forth? What might you, if you could give uh, uh, a prescription to the, the the younger John, what might you have done differently now that you know what you know?
1: Um, good question. I, I think it's less about the specifics of you know how to handle tough free throw moments because, as I say, we had a, a sports psychologist who really did introduce me to the mindfulness techniques and the ability to a bit of biofeedback to make sure that I could lower my heart rate and focus in that moment. But it was more the cumulative stress um, of being an elite college athlete, of having you know an entire school of 30,000 people or more know who you are, watch your every move, um, support you. Uh, I mean, fans don't like to admit this, but they are very fickle. <laughs> and So they will support you vehemently as if your survival is all that matters to them on the days when you do well and on the days when you don't, they turn in this weird way and become monsters. And um, I think the cumulative stress of that over the course of a season and the course of a career, if you become one of the key players on a team, is something that I I handled but also struggled with. Um, I think it at times made me withdraw from my team at times made me less efficient in my studies at times made me less happy as an individual and I feel like I could have handled that better had i been yeah, yeah had I been um, a bit more cognizant of it
0: yeah well, and so you you're working with, well you're working consulting with organizations but you're working with individuals in, uh, in performance uh if you're talking to if you're talking to athletes, for that matter, if you were talking to, to athletes today, and the game changes as the years go by, but it's not that dramatically different than in your playing days, I don't think. But, but what, what is it that you think today's professional athletes, or for that matter, coaches, um, and major colleges is probably close, close enough to professional to group that together, but what is yeah. it that you think your, your professional athletes and coaches um, don't really get or maybe attend to enough about the, the mental side of,
1: of their day-to-day work? Uh, most of it. i mean i i honestly think that it's it's very odd to me to watch the juxtaposition of the just immense advancement in physical therapies available to players you know from i mean the rudimentary things of ice bags and ice baths is now taken over by um chambers that you walk into and are sprayed with freezing cold um uh, i don't know what it is oxygen i assume but to stim and electrophoresis and you name it they have all these advancements but when it comes to psychology uh, the best that many teens will have is a sports psychologist and this is not to denigrate sports psychologists it's simply that uh, oftentimes they they are by the nature of their employment restricted to dealing with uh, help this guy with his free throws not understanding that the very nature of performance is that it's 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 drawn from holistic areas, and sometimes this person who's struggling with free throws need to talk about his home, to, you know, turbulent home life, and that ne- may not necessarily be in the remit of of a sports psychologist, uh, either by experience, expertise, or by demand of the client, which is the team. And I and I I just think there isn't enough emphasis on that on the mindset, uh, which is all the rage nowadays. To in yeah. certainly in, in 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 the workplace outside of sport to talk about the mindset you know carol dweck is on fire and people really love her work on mindset um and yet that outside of just saying buck it up or suck it up or you know get your mind right that seems to be the the strength of of work that's done on people's mindset even things like well i, I work with a couple of athletes and It's not that I'm trying to take away how important sport is either to them or to their society or to their team, but it's amazing to me the progress that's made when you help uh, athletes who feel under pressure to realize that they aren't what they do. Your occupation is not your definition. However important that free throw you missed, however important that shot you made, that is not who you are. It is just what you do. And when athletes are able to make that differentiation, to pull, to separate, as it should be, what they do uh, from who they are, the liability of their life is reduced. Because if you are what you do, when you're good, when you do well, you're a good person. Right. And when you do poorly, you're a bad person. And very few people... Have the mental strength to tolerate that kind of lability over the course of a hundred-game season, for example, in basketball. Right. It, it, it's it's sending yourself on a neurological, um, psychological, neurochemical roller coaster that just can't end well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Would you do? Do you think this is is it just naivete that that over the generations it's just that we've thought of sports as being this domain in which it's all about the body and performance and motor skill, or is, is there a bit of the the machismo, the, the we don't need to worry about this kind of stuff, that it's a sign of weakness, frankly, to have these conversations or to consider our own limitations, is, is, that, is, is that operating at all in this as well?
1: I think there's um, yeah, there's probably a bit of all of the above. I, mean, I think certainly the idea of, of the, the very staid, normative, and old-fashioned idea of masculinity dictates that women get to talk about their feelings and men don't. And that if a man talks about his feelings, he is more like a woman. And right. because of the kind of inherent misogyny of that, that philosophy, that's a bad thing. And yeah. so I think you often end up with people who are, are, you know, a number of times in sports, you hear people that there's some kids who are crying because they've lost a game. The coach and the society is, the, is and I'm talking about young kids, is the, one, is the thing that their community has told them that this is an important game. And if you lose an important game, crying is a perfectly reasonable response to that if you're eight or nine or ten or twelve or fifteen or sixteen or twenty and And then all of a sudden this weird duality comes in where the people who've told these kids that this is an important game now sanction these kids for for showing that they realized it was an important game mm-hmm. and in sports i don't I just don't get why we would put kids on that roller coaster. it just can't lead. I mean, good lord! It can't lead to the kind of behaviors we want from them in society more broadly, and certainly not in the workplaces they're going to enter, which won't be as weirdly uh, decontextualized as sport.
0: Well, I mean, I can't. I feel like I can't uh, let you go without asking about what is, I think, the big story still in the NBA this year, which has to be the Golden State Warriors. And when you look at this team, I mean, as a former player yourself, sure, but also as someone who's now studying well performance teamwork attitude or you know organizational cohesion i mean this is a team that to me as an outsider just looks different than than other teams it's a lot of what i think uh, intrigues and has captivated not just basketball fans and not just golden state fans but people uh, around the world the style of play the terms of their apparent chemistry and joy for the game fun on the court what what do you see when you when you see golden state play do you see is there anything that that comes to your mind as sure a former nba player but but as a psychologist
1: So, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the word about the Golden State Warriors is that it really highlights that most people have no idea what a team is. We use the word team uh, all the time in all contexts, work and sports. And we don't realize that most teams are just clubs of very talented individuals. I played overall 10 years. And in those 10 years, I played on three teams, I played on many more clubs. But I played on three teams because there is something qualitatively different about a team to a group. And what people are tagging into and and finding so appealing, I think, is that the Golden State effusively, um, behaviorally indicate that they're a team on a day-to-day basis. This doesn't mean they never disagree on court. It doesn't mean they never give each other cross-faces, but it does mean things the markers of teams versus groups are so evident. So the, the joy, and I don't mean the kind of uh, sideline parading that, that, that you often see whether it's a team or group because people feel obligated, but I mean the eminent joy that people see uh, in the faces of, of uh, the starters of that team when they are sat on the sideline watching guys who don't play an awful lot. I don't even mean the second unit. I mean the third unit. Sure. Uh, when the eminent joy in their faces as they are successful on the court is not universal. And it's certainly not present in groups, but it's present here. The joy that seems to happen when any one of their players gets on a roll, the, the, the clear happiness that other people feel by it, and the fact that any time anyone makes a shot, you see the way they come back down the court pointing at each other, indicating to the 30,000 fans in the audience I made the shot, but this is partly because he passed me a great pass and he gave a great screen. And I think these, these things come together in a way that make fans of the sport feel a, a sigh of relief that they are seeing something different than they don't normally see.
0: And do we know? I mean, we don't. It's a, it's a million dollar question. If, if we knew, obviously, <laughs> every team would have it. But but again, do, do we have any sense of, of where that comes from? Is The chicken and egg question of winning and chemistry, which comes first? But is that is that Steve Kerr, Luke Walton, the coaching staff? Is that something specific to to Steph Curry and the players on that roster? Is there any way to sort of bottle what they have? I mean, every team wants to do that. Or is it a, a confluence of so many different serendipitous circumstances that it's hard to quite put your finger on it. You just know it when you see it.
1: It, well, I mean, it's certainly one of those things where it's easiest to know when you see it. But I would also point out that 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 with when teams gel, there are often um some common factors. So there are common factors like um ad, an adversity point, usually a very crystallizing one for the team. um I'm not this is not to take anything away from Luke Walton, but the the fact that Steve Kerr um went down and went away from the team the way he did creates a crystallization point for an entire group of people to refocus um and to to it gives them an excuse a good excuse to allay personal ambition in the name of someone they respect this obviously only works if the person who's gone down or has has departed temporarily or otherwise is someone you do respect but they clearly made that happen steve kerr is very much like doc rivers in my mind in that he he worries less about the X's and O's of his team and worries more about the culture of his of his team. He worries more about managing the relationships. Um, earlier in the year, you everybody who watched, if you're paying attention, would have noticed that Clay Thompson, it, you know, he just wasn't on it. And and then you would have noticed there was a point. Luke Walton was was the coach, and then there was a point where suddenly Clay Thompson just had more shots. And not only did he have more shots, but Stephen Curry was passing up shots to get Clay Thompson shots. This is what teams do. They look at the big picture and they say, Yeah, I can make this shot, especially with Steph Curry. Of course he can make the shot. I can make the shot, but we're gonna need this guy down the stretch. Without him, we don't break records. We might win, but we don't, we're not the best. And these are the these are the signifiers of a team gelling when you make personal sacrifices for other individuals despite it not being in your personal best interest in the name of the unit that you're with. These are the indicators that tell you that you're onto a good thing.
0: Great stuff, John Amici. Thank you so much for for joining us. It's been a lot of fun to talk uh, talk basketball talk. Uh, psychology, I, again, to be able to work the Golden State Warriors and uh, the research of Carol Dweck into a conversation sort of uh, right up my alley, right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you out there who don't know Carol Dweck, Stanford psychologist, great book called Mindset that John's talking about. That's one that, frankly, you may have heard of because maybe your kids are bringing it home from school these days, or when you go to a parent-teacher night, they're talking about it, the, the way to praise our kids, the right mindset to adopt and developing skills. Um, really good stuff. John, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Sam. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for This Is Your Brain on Sports, our podcast that uh, my co-conspirator John Wertheim and I are doing. Again, exploring the hidden side of games, athletes, coaches, fans, owners, referees, and more. Uh, participate in the podcast, if you would, by, by tweeting us story ideas, questions for guests, and so forth. You can do that at, at Sam Summers, all one word, uh, or at John underscore Wertheim. Use the hashtag Brain on Sports. And again, look for the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice, and and take a look uh, for our book there, This Is Your Brain on Sports. If you're enjoying the podcast, we think you'd like that too. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk with you again soon.